On Sunday, June 18, 2023, at around 8 a.m., a private submersible named Titan descended the seas approximately 380 miles, or 611 kilometers, off of the coast of Newfoundland, Canada in an attempt to bring tourists to visit the Titanic shipwreck. Five occupants are on board, and after approximately one hour and 45 minutes, the Titan lost contact with the surface team. This is everything that we know so far. Hey everyone, I'm your host Alex, and welcome back to this revival episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Before we dig into today's episode, I had a listener ask me to clarify the difference between scuba diving versus the submersible diving to the Titanic, and do people need to train for this type of pressure diving? So, when you're standing on the ground at sea level, you're experiencing what's called one atmosphere of pressure. This is our normal pressure, or at least where I live in Tampa, Florida. However, as you descend under the water, for every 10 meters or about 33 feet that you dive down, you gain one more atmosphere of pressure. After a while, this pressure is so forceful on the human body that the muscles expanding your lungs can no longer work, and that's because the pressure pushing down on them is much more stronger than the muscles themselves. The deepest ever recorded scuba dive was to 1,090 feet, or about 332 meters. The Titanic itself sits at a depth of over 12,500 feet, or 3,800 meters. This is over 11,000 feet, or 3,350 meters, deeper than the deepest ever recorded scuba dive. This is why subs are required to reach these extreme depths. They need really strong walls, which are called holes, spelled H-U-L-L-S, that can withstand this very strong pressure. Now, the chamber inside of the sub, where the people sit, is pressurized, kind of similar to how airplanes pressurize their cabins. So the people inside do not need to undergo safety stops during their ascent back to the surface like the people who are scuba diving do. There is not really a risk of decompression sickness, and that's because the hole of the submarine prevents the air inside from being compressed. Because of this, there's no need for the people inside the submarine to undergo any type of pressure training before completing the dive. Hopefully this really quick, high-level overview has been informative, and so with that, let's go ahead and dive into the timeline of what happened. Now, I'm going to try my best to keep a good flow to the story, but there's just so much wild information. I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance, just in case it feels like I'm jumping around a lot. On Friday, June 16th, 2023, the expedition team departed St. John's in Newfoundland, Canada, heading towards the location of the RMS Titanic. The five people that would later take the submersible Titan below the surface were OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush, age 61, British businessman and explorer Hamish Harding, age 58, French maritime expert Paul-Henry Nargolet, age 77, British Pakistani businessman Shazada Dawood, age 48, and his 19-year-old son, Solomon Dawood. And I apologize if I mispronounced anyone's name. On Saturday, June 17th, Hamish posted to Facebook, quote, Due to the worst winter in Newfoundland in 40 years, 
This mission is likely to be the first and only manned mission to the Titanic in 2023. A weather window has just opened up and we're going to attempt a dive tomorrow." End quote. On Sunday, June 18th, the Titan sub and its five-person crew were set to embark at 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, according to an Instagram post by Hamish. However, according to the U.S. Coast Guard, the descent was initially delayed until about 8 a.m. By 9.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the surface vessel lost contact with the Titan while it was descending to the RMS Titanic. Titan was due to arrive back to the surface at approximately 3 p.m., but by 5.40 p.m., when they had still yet to resurface, the surface crew reported the missing submersible to the U.S. Coast Guard. Search and rescue efforts began Monday, June 19th in full force as the U.S. Coast Guard, Navy, and Canadian Coast Guard swarmed the surface area above the last known location of the Titan sub. Officials asked for help from commercial vessels, while Canadian planes joined the search and began dropping sonar buoys into the water. Sonar works by sending out sound waves that bounce off objects which creates an echo. A machine, called a sonar transducer, then measures the direction and strength of the echo to locate the object. However, this technology is limited as sonar equipment only works to a depth of about 6,600 feet, or about 2,000 meters, which is only half the distance to the Titanic. Sonar also detects a lot of acoustic feedback. So with the sonar buoys deployed, Tuesday, June 20th, Canadian Lockheed P-3 Orion aircraft detected banging sounds at 30-minute intervals, suggesting that the crew is still alive in the submersible. This gave hope to search and rescue efforts, as members of OceanGate would claim that Stockton would know to create these noises in an intermittent frequency rather than continuous. By creating these sounds in long intervals, they were more likely to be noticed as being man-made rather than being noise contamination from other vessels or equipment. By 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, June 21st, the U.S. Coast Guard formally announced their awareness of the detected underwater sounds and searches being conducted by remotely operated vehicles, or ROVs, are directed to the area of the sounds. The sound data was also sent to U.S. Navy experts for analysis However, the exact origin or location of these banging sounds continues to remain unknown. At the beginning of the search, OceanGate Expeditions told officials that the missing Titan submersible had approximately 96 hours worth of emergency oxygen on reserve. Their reserves were expected to run out at approximately 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, June 22nd. As this time came and went, more and more people began to lose hope that the crew of five would be found alive. Early Thursday, rumors began spreading that a debris field was identified near the Titanic. During a 3 p.m. press release, the U.S. Coast Guard confirmed the new debris field and that the debris identified was consistent with the descriptions of the Titanic submersible and that it suggested a loss of pressurized chamber and an implosion. There were no survivors. By now, we know that the submersible has swept the media, covering the situation in such intensity, it almost reminds me of when the wild boar's soccer team got trapped in a cave in Thailand. And honestly, it's a shame that we can't have the same happy ending. But the scenario begs us to ask more questions. 
Who is Oceangate? How was Titan created? And were there any safety tests conducted or appropriate safety features on board? Before we dig into more details, I would like to first emphasize that, for some people, adventuring runs in their blood. The unknown has called to many, and for some, it's their driving force, the thing that gets them up in the morning and what they look forward to. This would not be the first time that we, as humans, have ventured forth into areas not fit for human life. This is not the first time that adventurers have paid the ultimate price, and I could guarantee it most certainly won't be the last. There are a lot of moral questions floating around about who exactly was on board and if this expedition should even be legally allowed. Now, the only comment I'm going to make on this is, adventuring not only sparks innovation, but it also deepens the knowledge that we come to learn about the world around us. A lot of expeditions that take place, especially to locations like the Titanic, involve a lot of research into these areas. It's not just for fun. Oceangate has stated that these expeditions include gathering information from Titanic, such as the erosion process, sea life, taking scans of the ship, etc. It's not just taking tourists for a joyride. I want you to think of the first ever airplane, the first Mount Everest summit, the first trip to the moon, or even the first trip across the Atlantic in a small, wooden, wind-powered boat. To be the first adventurer comes with potentially deadly price. It's a risk that some are willing to take, and in this podcast, I'm not going to question the who or why someone would want to dive into unknown depths to view the Titanic. I'm only going to cover the factual information regarding the Titan submersible, Ocean Gate, and the safety features that are or should have been implemented. So, with that said, let's go ahead and dive into who Oceangate is. Oceangate, the company that created and owns the Titan Submersible, is a privately owned company headquartered in Everett, Washington. Per the company's website, they were founded in 2009 and have, quote, focused on increasing access to the deep ocean through innovation of the next generation of crewed submersibles and launch platforms. Our fleet of five-person submersibles are capable of reaching depths as deep as 4,000 meters and provide unique platforms for exploring the deep ocean. For the first two and a half years, OceanGate's founder, Stockton Rush, evaluated undersea technologies and acquired the submersible Antipods, two robotic vehicles, various support vessels, and multiple pieces of support equipment. OceanGate acquired a second submersible in 2012 and rebuilt it into Cyclops-1 to serve as a working prototype for Titan. OceanGate's highest priority during our early dives was the development of detailed operations, maintenance, and safety manuals for our crew and equipment that would allow us to operate safely and consistently in a wide variety of demanding environments. These procedures have proved to be extremely effective as OceanGate has successfully completed 14 expeditions and over 200 dives in the Pacific, Atlantic, and Gulf of Mexico. Following every mission, the team evaluates and updates the procedures as part of a continued commitment to evolve and ensure operational safety." End quote. During my research for this episode, I try to confirm the exact number of dives the Titan has taken to extreme depths. However, nothing on the OceanGate website or any article that I could find clearly stated the number of dives. 
The only numbers that are provided are very generic, such as the quote-unquote 14 expeditions listed on OceanGate's website. However, OceanGate offers other expeditions, not just Titanic expeditions. So I'm left wondering how many of these were to the extreme depths such as where the Titanic is located. So with that note, let's go ahead and discuss more about the submersible Titan itself. The latest sub for OceanGate to design is called Titan. Titan is a submersible with a capacity of five people. That's one pilot plus four crew with a hole designed out of carbon fiber and titanium making it light in weight and, quote, more cost-efficient to mobilize than any other deep-diving submersible, end quote. The Titan sub is 22 feet long, 9.2 feet wide, and 8.3 feet tall, or 670 centimeters long, 280 centimeters wide, and 250 centimeters tall. The interior of the submarine is very short, meaning that all passengers on board will need to sit on the floor of the sub with their feet crossed during the entire duration of the expedition. The Titanic expedition dive is expected to last about 9 hours, taking approximately 2 to 2.5 two hours to reach the Titanic at a depth of 12,800 feet or 3,800 meters. While the safety information provided on OceanGate's website is extremely lackluster, more information has been brought to the public's attention since the Titan went missing and search and rescue operations began. And a lot of it seems very questionable. There was a lot of back and forth and retraction of statements of who created or collaborated on the vessel in recent years. In both public statements and court documents, OceanGate suggested that the Titan submersible was designed and engineered with the assistance of entities such as Boeing, the University of Washington, and the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Pulled directly from OceanGate's website, quote, The state-of-the-art vessel, designed and engineered by OceanGate Incorporated, in collaboration with experts from NASA, Boeing, and the University of Washington, made its subsea debut in 2018." End quote. However, Kevin Williams, the executive director of University of Washington's Applied Physics Laboratory, said publicly that the school and laboratory were not involved in the design, engineering, or testing of the Titan submersible. It was added that although the university's Applied Physics Laboratory initially signed a $5 million collaborative research agreement, the two entities parted way after only $650,000 of work was completed. That research only resulted in the development of another OceanGate submersible, the Shallow Diving Cyclops 1 submersible, which OceanGate stated was the prototype to the Titan sub. Kevin Williams again reiterated that Quote, because APLUW expertise involved only shallow water implementation, the laboratory was not involved in the design, engineering, or testing of the Titan submersible used in the RMS Titanic expedition. End quote. When Boeing was asked about details of their relationship with OceanGate, a representative stated, quote, Boeing was not a partner on the Titan and did not design or build it. End quote. Despite a 2021 press release where OceanGate thanked industry partner Boeing for their design and engineering support related to the Titan submersible. In a 2020 press release, OceanGate stated that they had help from NASA. Quote, 
NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama will serve as the facility where the development and manufacturing of a new aerospace-grade hull is completed, end quote, and that NASA would be involved in the testing of the new carbon fiber pressure vessels. However, OceanGate later retracted these statements in 2022, noting that a team of NASA engineers were only consulted throughout the development and engineering of the project. NASA confirmed that they consulted on materials and manufacturing for Titan, but denied testing or manufacturing at their own facilities. Now, rewinding just a little bit, during the Manned Underwater Vehicles 2017-2018 Global Industry Overview held by Marine Technology Society, it was noted that OceanGate is, quote, not pursuing classification, end quote, due to the non-conventional design of Titan. The report detailed the experimental designs stating Titan features a single large viewport and its carbon fiber and titanium construction is designed to make the submersible lighter than traditional deep-sea submersibles. It will be outfitted with external 4K cameras, multi-beam sonar, laser scanner, inertial navigation, and an acoustic synthetic baseline positioning system. The report states that due to the experimental design of Titan, quote, factory testing and validation program is critical, end quote. The report also notes that UW's APL and Boeing were in partnership of the vessel's development, giving OceanGate, quote, full confidence in their novel approach, end quote. However, in a March 2018 letter sent to OceanGate's CEO Stockton Rush, the Marine Technology Society wrote that the members collectively expressed unanimous concern regarding the development of Titan and the planned Titanic expedition. The letter continues, stating that they recommended a prototype testing system, which would require additional time and expenses. However, this, quote, validation process by a third party is a critical component in safeguards that protect all submersible occupants, end quote. Earlier that same year, David Lockridge, the Director of Marine Operations at OceanGate, wrote an engineering report stating that the craft under development needed more testing and that passengers might be endangered when it reached extreme depths. David was fired from OceanGate in January 2018 after presenting his quality control report to OceanGate's senior management and stating that he would not authorize any manned tests of Titan without a scan of the hull's integrity. OceanGate would end up suing David in 2018, accusing him of breaching a non-disclosure agreement. David then filed a counterclaim, alleging that he was wrongfully fired for raising questions about testing and safety. David's preamble to his claim read, quote, Now is the time to properly address items that may pose a safety risk to personnel. Verbal communication of key items I have addressed in my attached document have been dismissed on several occasions, so I feel now I must make this report so that there is an official record in place." End quote. David claimed that the viewport for the Titan was only certified for depths up to 1,300 meters, or about 4,300 feet. Now, just a reminder, the Titanic is located at about 3,800 meters, or 12,500 feet. However, David's primary concern focused on the company's decision to rely on sensitive acoustic monitoring, which is cracking or popping sounds made by the hole under pressure to detect flaws rather than scan the hole. 
David said the company told him no equipment existed that could perform such a test on a 5 inch thick or 12.7 centimeter thick carbon fiber hole. David's counterclaim stated that, quote, this was problematic because this type of acoustic analysis would only show when a component is about to fail, often milliseconds before an implosion, and would not detect any existing flaws prior to putting pressure onto the hole, end quote. The report also included David's worry that, quote-unquote, visible flaws in the carbon fiber supplied to OceanGate raised the risk of small flaws expanding into larger tears during pressure cycling. These are the huge pressure changes that the submersible would experience as it made its way to and from the deep ocean floor. He noted that a previously tested scale model of the hole had quote-unquote prevalent flaws. The hole that David was writing about was made by Spencer Composites, the only company to have previously made a carbon fiber hole for a manned submersible. This hole, however, quote, made a lot of noise, end quote, according to OceanGate's CEO, Stockton Rush. Stockton tested the vessel on two different dives, but when it made the same concerning noises, he decided to scrap the vessel and use a different manufacturer, this time opting for an aerospace supplier. However, David's recommendation was that non-destructive testing of the Titan's hull was necessary to ensure a solid and saved product. The filing states that David was told that such testing was impossible and that OceanGate would instead rely on its much-touted acoustic monitoring system. The company claims this technology, developed in-house, uses acoustic sensors to listen for telltale signs of carbon fibers in the hull deteriorating to provide, quote, early warning detection for the pilot with enough time to arrest the descent and safely return to the surface, end quote. Now, I struggle with this information a lot, mostly because multiple people or entities have now recommended to OceanGate that the Titan submersible should undergo more testing before becoming available for commercial use. However, OceanGate claims that the vessel is safe after testing the submersible they made with new safety technology that they also made. This alone is concern for a lot of bias. I mean, of course a company is going to want their product to work as intended, especially after years of development. Situations like this can lead to senior management turning a blind eye on aspects they feel are frivolous or not required, such as safety. In David's report, he also states that the company should work with the American Bureau of Shipping and have them inspect and certify Titan. However, a few months after David's dismissal from the company, OceanGate published a blog post on their website laying out the reasons for not having the Titan certified by the American Bureau of Shipping or any other similar organization. Now, I'm going to read this blog post word for word from OceanGate's website, as I think it's important to hear the tone and the exact wording. I tried to cut down some of the wording, but I really think it's all relevant. So here we go. Titled, Why Isn't Titan Classified? February 21st, 2019. Most major marine operators require that chartered vessels are classed by an independent group such as the American Bureau of Shipping, DNVGL, Lloyd's Register, or one of the many others. These groups have assembled very detailed standards for classing everything from oil tankers to auxiliary ship equipment like remotely operated vehicles. 
Many of these standards are based on industry practice or covered by regulations such as reserve buoyancy, the number of life rafts, the type of materials that can be used on the hull, etc. Classing assures ship owners, insurers, and regulators that vessels are designed, constructed, and inspected to acceptable standards. Classing may be effective at filtering out unsatisfactory designers and builders, but the established standards do little to weed out subpar vessel operators because classing agencies only focus on validating the physical vessel. They do not ensure that operators adhere to proper operating procedures and decision-making processes, two areas that are much more important for mitigating risks at sea. The vast majority of marine and aviation accidents are a result of operator error, not mechanical failure. As a result, simply focusing on classing the vessel does not address the operational risks. Maintaining high-level operational safety requires constant, committed effort and a focused corporate culture, two things that OceanGate takes very seriously and that are not assessed during classification. When OceanGate was founded, the goal was to pursue the highest reasonable level of innovation in the design and operation of manned submersibles. By definition, innovation is already outside of an accepted system. However, this does not mean that OceanGate does meet standards where they apply, but it does mean that innovation often falls outside of the existing industry paradigm. While classing agencies are willing to pursue the certification of new and innovative designs and ideas, they often have multi-year approval cycle due to the lack of pre-existing standards, especially, for example, in the case of many of OceanGate's innovations, such as carbon fiber pressure vessels and a real-time whole health monitoring system. Bringing an outside entity up to speed on every innovation before it's put into real-world testing is the anathema to rapid innovation. For example, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic all rely on experienced inside experts to oversee the daily operations, testing, and validation versus bringing in outsiders who first need to be educated before being qualified to quote-unquote validate any innovations. As an interim step in the path to classification, we are working with a premier classing agency to validate Titan's dive test plan. A licensed marine surveyor will witness a successful dive to 4,000 meters, inspect the vessel before and after the dive, and provide a statement of fact attesting to the completion of the dive test plan. In addition to designing and building an innovative carbon fiber hole, our team has also developed and incorporated many other elements and procedures into our operations to mitigate risks. OceanGate submersibles are the only known vessel to use real-time hole health monitoring with this RTM system, we can determine if the hole is compromised well before situations become life-threatening and safely return to the surface. This innovative safety system is not currently covered by any classing agency. No other submersible currently utilizes real-time monitoring to monitor hole health during a dive. We want to know why. Class subs are only required to undergo depth validation every three years, whereas our RTM system validates the integrity of the hole on each and every dive. Our risk assessment team looks at the entire expedition and completes a detailed, quantified risk assessment for each dive. The risk assessment takes into account 25 specific factors that can influence a dive outcome. Using that information, a dive plan is written to mitigate against these known risks. These risk factors include things like weather forecasts, sea state, sub-maintenance, 
crew fatigue, predicted current, dive site experience, recent dive history, schedule expectations, crew experience, and more. In this assessment, the actual operational risks are almost always concentrated on the surface operations, not the subsea performance of the submersible. Another simple risk mitigation step that we take that we believe to be unique to OceanGate is that we draw a small vacuum on the inside of the sub at the start of each dive. This step verifies the integrity of the low-pressure O-ring seal and eliminates the risk of leaks, a proven problem that even some other class submersibles experience. Classing standards do have value. In fact, our first submersible, Antipodes, has always been ABS class and our entire team is well aware of the classing standards and the value of using them as a benchmark for vessel performance. But by itself, classing is not sufficient to ensure safety. In part, this is because classing does not properly assess the operational factors that are vital for ensuring a safe dive and because classing assessments are done annually, at best, and do not ensure that the operator follows procedures or processes that are the key to conducting safe dive operations. That concludes the blog post. I don't even know where to begin. Honestly, I don't know about you, but that is the most outlandish and quite frankly insane thing that I've ever heard from a company, let alone a company in which their vessel takes members of the public to areas that are extremely dangerous and not often explored. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the comments that were made in this blog post. The first being, quote, Classing agencies only focus on validating the physical vessel. They do not ensure that operators adhere to proper operating procedures and decision-making processes, end quote. Isn't that obvious? I mean, what other classing agency has ever examined the staff that a company has hired? Usually other regulations or entities enforce this, not classification agencies. Why would you not get your vessel classified and follow proper operating procedures? They mention later in the blog post that this is a years-long process, but if you're looking at doing this commercial experience for an extended period of time, shouldn't you be making sure that your vessels are completely sound and rigorously tested? Secondly, quote, As an interim step in the path to classification, we are working with a premier classing agency to validate Titan's dive test plan, end quote. I've searched OceanGate's website up and down, inside and out. I've searched this information on what feels like every corner of the internet, yet I come up empty. If this quote-unquote premier classing agency was actually utilized, there is absolutely no one reporting on it, including OceanGate. Lastly, quote, The innovative safety system is not currently covered by any classing agency, end quote. Now, this is referring to their real-time whole health monitoring system, which was apparently created in-house. Of course, brand new technology would not already be classified. This would or should be assessed and taken into consideration during the rigorous classification process. And not only this, but I want to reiterate what David Lockridge stated, that this system of monitoring would only take into account when a component is about to fail. It would not detect any pre-existing flaws prior to putting pressure onto the hole. 
Now, I'm not an expert or an engineer, but it sounds like with this RTM system, if you're at the depth of the Titanic and a notification goes off, you're already too late. Overall, I'm just left bewildered by this company's blatant hubris and lack of safety guideline considerations. I think the Marine Technology Society said it best in their March 2018 letter to Stockton Rush. Quote, the manned underwater vehicles industry has earned itself an inviolable safety track record over the past 40 years. This is partly due to the diligent engineering discipline and professional approach exercised by members of the industry, but also due to the collective observation of and adherence to a variety of safety standards. This reputation is solid because it was hard won over many years of diligence application and has resulted in safe and successful record of operation. Our members are all aware of how important and precious this standing is and deeply concerned that a single negative event could undo this." End quote. Now, some people from OceanGate, including co-founder Guillermo Sholin, reject some of the criticism directed at the company over safety and certification, stating, quote, People keep equating certification with safety and are ignoring the 14 years of development of the Titan sub. Any expert who weighs in on this, including Mr. James Cameron, will also admit that they were not there for the design of the sub, for the engineering of the sub, for the building of the sub, and certainly not for the rigorous test programs the sub went through." End quote. Personally, I think you should take this statement with a grain of salt, especially considering that Guillermo left OceanGate approximately 10 years ago, although he does still maintain a minority stake in the company. Again, I'm not an expert, I'm not an engineer, I've never designed or even been inside of a submersible, but my career is in clinical research, and I understand the importance of peer review, testing, and the use of third-party oversight to reduce bias in a final product's performance review. From everything that I've read and gathered, my understanding of the situation is that OceanGate collaborated with the University of Washington to design the hole for Cyclops 1, which was supposed to be the prototype of the Titan. However, it was only a third of the size of Titan. To me, it sounds like they took that information that they learned from creating this vessel, copy, paste, enlarge it, and applied it to the Titan. Which, physics doesn't work like that. I mean, I'm no physicist by any means, but I can understand that basic principle. And while NASA admits to consulting on the materials used for Titan, the exact information that was shared is not public. Did NASA also try to forewarn OceanGate that their vessel was insufficient regarding safety standards? I mean, who knows? At this point, they've rejected information given to them by multiple people and multiple entities. Who's to say that they also didn't reject whatever NASA said? The only thing that I can confirm as far as the construction and safety testing completed on the Titan was, is that it was done in-house by OceanGate, which is a mountain of a red flag. During my research, I discovered that there was a previous incident during a Titan expedition to the Titanic. In this instance, according to BBC's two-part series called Take Me to Titanic, one of the thrusters of the Titan was installed backwards. When the crew hit the bottom of the ocean floor near the Titanic, they attempted to move the submersible forward. However, since one thruster was pointed forward and the other pointed backwards, the sub would only move in a circular motion. They could not move forward or backwards. 
Multiple previous passengers on other expeditions also recalled failures such as propulsion system failure or communications with the surface team cutting out. Now, shifting gears, let's go ahead and cover what OceanGate did have in place in the event of an emergency. As mentioned in the blog post discussed earlier, the Titan draws a small vacuum to ensure that there's a good seal prior to the dive. This is to ensure that there is no leaks or cracks in the low-pressure o-ring seal, and once this vacuum seal is in place, the occupants are then bolted in from the outside by surface team crew members. This bolting-in process was discussed a lot in the media immediately following the news of the missing submersible. Theories were circulating that the Titan experienced a loss of communication, they returned to the surface, and could not be located. The search and rescue that was being conducted by multiple military services was attempting to locate the vessel on the surface of the ocean prior to the emergency oxygen reserves running out. Now, that sounds terrifying. Can you imagine being trapped in a sub right at the surface of the ocean, but you're unable to free yourself while you slowly asphyxiate? However, because the Titan did not have a standard submersible hatch, this is why the crew was bolted in from the outside with 17 bolts. It's important to note that had the crew been trapped somewhere under the surface, the atmospheric pressure pushing down on the outside of the vessel would have been so strong that even without the bolts, they would not have been able to safely open the hatch. The Titan would have to completely resurface before doing so. So moving on, let's now discuss the ways in which Titan would be able to ascend to the surface. In the event of an emergency, the Titan is equipped with safety mechanisms that facilitate its ascent to the surface. The design is to ensure that the features can be activated even if all occupants are incapacitated. Now, I saw several surfacing mechanisms listed on a few random sources, but I couldn't confirm them through other more reliable sources, so take the following information with a grain of salt. Standard mechanisms such as thrusters, detachable sublegs, and an inflatable airbag can be initially used to attempt to reach the surface. However, if these systems fail, the sub also has other backups. Number one, three enormous, quote-unquote, beat-up, lead construction pipes called triple weights. No electricity is required to operate them, and when they drop away, the sub gains buoyancy and will begin to ascend to the surface. Number two, two roll weights. These can be used if the triple weights fail to fall away. These roll weights sit on either side, so the crew would only have to shift its weight to either side to roll them off. If that doesn't work, motors and electric fingers can be used to activate it to release the next ascent mechanism, which is number three, several ballast bags. These ballast bags hang below the vessel and are full of metal shot. They're also attached by self-dissolving bonds, which will disintegrate after 16 hours, freeing the ballast bags and giving the sub buoyancy. During my research, I also discovered that some articles stated that the Titan had CO2 scrubbers on board. Now, I've covered these in previous episodes, but just as a quick high-level overview, these CO2 scrubbers will process the air you breathe and essentially scrub out the CO2, or carbon dioxide, in an attempt to clean the air, making oxygen supplies last longer. However, former Royal Navy submarine captain Ryan Ramsey stated that he reviewed videos and photos of the Titan's interior and could not see a CO2 removal system on board. 
Other people across social media and the news have shared their experiences with CO2 scrubbers and were shocked to find out that the Titan had remarkably insignificant CO2 scrubbers, if any, compared to other submarine and submersible vessels. After reviewing OceanGate's website, I did not see a mention of a CO2 scrubber on board. When search and rescue operations continued to fail to find the Titan, more theories began to spread. Did the Titan get stuck inside the Titanic while exploring it? Did the deep sea current push the sub into debris which made it get entangled? Or did the Titan somehow become neutrally buoyant, got swept away by deep sea currents prior to ascending, which pushed it outside of current surface search and rescue areas of operations? The ever more frightening theory that was spreading was, did the Titan implode? We now know that this is unfortunately true. And now stick with me as I get a little morbid here. Obviously, we would have preferred to find the crew alive and well. However, since we already know that this is not possible, an implosion was the best of the worst case scenarios. Every other scenario involves the crew being conscious and aware of the limited oxygen supplies. The theory that the sub was trapped on the ocean floor, entangled with the Titanic at almost 4,000 meters down, was the worst of the worst case scenarios. According to the Weather Channel, had the sub been stuck on the ocean floor, the temperature inside of the sub would have been roughly 0 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 17.8 degrees Celsius. Experts state that the low temperature would induce hypothermia and the increasing carbon dioxide would act as a sedative, causing the crew to become drowsy and slowly suffocate. Whereas when experts review what we know of atmospheric pressure and implosion physics, we know that the implosion occurred so quickly, roughly 40 milliseconds or less, the brain would not have had time to even process what was happening, let alone process the pain of it. Pain is processed in roughly 100 to 150 milliseconds, so it's safe to say that the entire crew died instantly and before they felt any pain. If there's an afterlife, I would bet they didn't even know that they had died. If you recall the horrific Biford dolphin explosion, which I covered in an earlier episode, this was a rapid decompression from nine atmospheres of pressure to one atmosphere of pressure. The Titan sub was approximately 3,800 meters below the surface, so they would be experiencing roughly 380 atmospheres of pressure, or almost 5,600 psi, that's pound force per square inch, before the rapid implosion. Blair Thornton, who's a professor of marine autonomy, states that this pressure would be similar to the weight of the Eiffel Tower. A few people have asked me to clarify what happens to a human body during an implosion, would there be any bodies recovered, questions like this. And I saw this clip from biochemist Hank Green where he breaks down what happens during an implosion such as this, and I thought it was really interesting, so I'm going to play the entire audio clip. I've been hearing some conversations about whether or not there will be bodies recovered from the wreck of the Titan submarine. And that, let's just, let's go through it real quick. So a bomb, and this is going to be weird, but a bomb is just pressure change. It's what happens when, when something that's solid or liquid becomes a gas very fast. 
and that gas takes up more space. And so it pushes out into the world around it and, you know, quite close. It has a lot of molecules pushing very hard and, you know, there's a bigger area that it's going to move into. And as it moves into that area, there's, you know, more space for those molecules to take up. So there's less impact. If you're close to the bomb, you're going to get hit really hard by all those molecules. If you're further away, you're going to get hit less hard by them. It's weird to think of a bomb this way. Like we think that it's the fire and it's the like explosion part that's hurting you. It is the explosion, but the explosion is just pressure change. So what happens is you get hit very hard either just by the gas molecules, which can crush your internal organs, cause internal bleeding, blow your body apart, uh, or you can get hit by things that are being carried along by that pressure wave, which you then become. Like you can become the shrapnel or you can be hit by the shrapnel. If you wanted to recreate what happened with the Titan submarine on the surface of the Earth, what you would need to do is create a huge amount of pressure pushing inward on the sub. And what you would do to do that is to surround it with explosives and make sure that all the explosives are pointing in toward where the people are. So all of the energy from the explosion is being directed inward. And what's then gonna happen to those people is they're gonna hit by like three different things. One is just the air molecules. The intense pressure of the air, it hits you and it collapses you. It's like being hit from every direction on every square inch of your body by a freight train. Two, the actual metal of the sub is going to be the shrapnel part of it. So you've got the air and the shrapnel. And then you've got a third component of shrapnel, which would be the water from the ocean rushing in. All those things are gonna happen in milliseconds, faster than the electrical impulses from their body could reach their brain. Like they would not have noticed that something happened, probably. Uh, they certainly would not have felt any pain in this situation. And the bodies would be hit, there would be so much energy involved in that. It would be like standing on top of an explosion. And it, it's kind of a situation, you know, we talk, we, this is a science communicator phrase, like you aren't biology anymore, you become physics. It's a physics situation. And it's just particles at that point, like cells wouldn't survive that. So there's, there's not much to recover, maybe like a wedding. Getting into a more technical aspect, when the hole collapses, it moves inward at about 1500 miles per hour. That's 2,414 kilometers per hour. That's also the equivalent of 2,200 feet per second or 671 meters per second, according to Dave Corley, a former U.S. nuclear submarine officer. Now, one claim circling social media is that the energy created during the implosion would generate enough heat that the temperature would be similar to the surface of the sun. However, according to Jasper Graham Jones, an associate professor of mechanical and marine engineering at Plymouth University in the UK, this claim is totally false. According to this professor, quote, the collapse of the composite or metal structure would just produce theoretical heat energy due to friction, but this is very low and would not be visible or measurable with the mass of cold water around it, end quote. After the discovery of the Titan debris field, it came to light that the Navy had captured the audio of the implosion on Sunday morning, but they did not share this discovery until after the Titan debris was located. 
They received a lot of criticism for why the search and rescue operations were conducted, even though they were quote-unquote aware of the implosion. Firstly, from what I've read, this sonar technology is very top secret, so it's no surprise that it wasn't shared right away. Secondly, an implosion on this scale has never occurred before. This is the very first deep-sea implosion to occur with human beings on board. It's very likely that the Navy had no idea what the sound was until further review which coincided with the search for the Titan. They probably put two and two together after the Titan debris field was identified. Now, the following sound clip is the audio that the Navy captured on the morning of Sunday, June 19th. Before we conclude this episode, there's just a few questions I wanted to try to answer, and I wasn't really sure where to fit these questions or answers into the episode, so I thought I would just cover this wide variety of information towards the end. When theories were spreading that the Titan could be at the surface and just not yet located, people were asking why the submarine wasn't using some sort of GPS tracking device. Now, just to clarify, GPS trackers, cellular data, Apple AirTags, things like this, they all work via communication with satellites. You have to be on the ground or at the surface of the water in order to communicate with a satellite. These type of signals do not penetrate the water very well, since water is much more dense than air. These extra molecules get in the way and absorb the electromagnetic fields used by systems like GPS and radar. With that said, I still did not find any information confirming or denying if Titan had a GPS tracker available, especially for instances where the sub had surfaced and was not able to be located. Honestly, with everything that I've read, I'd speculate that the CEO didn't think that scenario would ever happen. Since the sub is in constant communication with the surface team, he probably assumed that they would never get lost and therefore didn't require one. Now, the elephant in the room, to me, is the question, why was the vessel painted white? During the first day of search and rescue, there were six-foot waves and large white caps. From what I've read, the sub would be sitting just below the surface of the water. It was painted white. If they had been able to ascend, the chances of them being located would be very, very slim. Usually private vessels like these are painted safety orange or yellow, colors that are easily visible against the dark waters of the ocean or white caps. Switching gears again, I want to include a post made by Interesting Engineering regarding the different materials used to create Titan. I'm going to include their entire clip here as it has a ton of good information. However, I recommend that you check them out at interestingengineering.com. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me. The carbon fiber and titanium, there's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. Another trip to the Titanic. Another captain who didn't listen. The rule he broke? Constructing the Titan out of carbon fiber and titanium. As pointed out by Igor Sushko on Twitter, 
These materials are known for their strength, but also their brittleness. This morning, an ROV or remote operated vehicle from the vessel Horizon Arctic discovered the tail cone of the Titan submersible approximately 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic on the seafloor. But the Titan's downfall wasn't just due to the material choice. The frame was reportedly subjected to something called galvanic corrosion. This destructive process happens when different metals, like the titanium frame and the metal nuts and bolts of the Titan, are in contact with each other in an electrolyte, such as seawater. The seawater acts as a perfect conductor, allowing electric current to flow between the metals, corroding the material. The carbon fiber hull, while strong, is also a good conductor. Carbon fiber, when it fails, fails catastrophically, blowing up into splinters. When the Titan imploded, it was instant death for all passengers. The search that followed? A grim formality. The crew, including Rush himself, were navigating the depths in a vessel with no seats, one tiny bathroom, and controlled by a device resembling a video game controller. A claustrophobic setting for a catastrophic event. Despite warnings about the Titan's safety, the vessel continued its fateful journey. A stark reminder of the price of ignoring caution. So, how did broken rules and engineering failures lead to the submarine implosion? It's a story of ambition, innovation, and the tragic cost of overlooking safety. In the silent depths of the ocean, the echoes of the Titan's implosion serve as a solemn reminder of the price of progress. Lastly, the question remains, why did the submersible use what appears to be a modified $30 Logitech F710 wireless gaming controller? I don't know. Someone asked me if this is normal to see. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I've heard rumors that like the military uses gaming controllers for some of their equipment, but I would have major doubts that this includes manned vehicles. And if used, I would speculate gaming controllers are only used in unmanned vehicles. Now, I tried to reach out to a friend who used to be in the Air Force, and her husband still is, but they both confirmed that they have never heard of a gaming controller being used to control an aircraft. Now, gaming controllers are often user-friendly and easy to adapt to when controlling equipment, and while this does seem odd to use in a manned submersible, and spark some questions on safety concerns, what I will say is that this controller was not the cause of the accident. Obviously, we still have the investigation to go, but it appears that it was a whole failure that caused the implosion. Finally, moving to our last topic, I just want to cover two odd or interesting parallels that I found during my research. So, the submersible was named Titan, because the company's Titanic dives, according to OceanGates.com. I don't know, I just thought it was an interesting parallel. Another odd parallel is uh, Wendy Rush, the wife of the OceanGates CEO Stockton Rush, is a descendant of two passengers who were on board of the Titanic in 1912. Wendy is the great-great-granddaughter of Isidore Strauss, who was the co-owner of Macy's, which is a retail chain here in the United States. So, just two odd or interesting parallels, however you want to look at it. 
So finally, to conclude this episode, I lastly want to comment on a conspiracy theory that the Titan implosion was done in order to fake the passenger's death. Now, I'll be clear-cut on the fact that I do not believe this statement. With everything that I've found or read, it's clear to me that Oceangate not only cut corners in creating Titan, but was also proud to do so. I believe that this is just one of the many instances where man's hubris led to his end. Thank you for listening to this episode. Now, I tried to cover every topic I could think of, but as the investigation into Titan's implosion begins, I'll be keeping an eye on it and plan to release any update episodes with any new information that comes to light. I'd like to give a special thanks to Discord users BV Knight, Jazz Hands, Kurt Russell Rocks, David, and Hot Dog Outlaw for helping out with this episode by providing some of the used source material via the podcast Discord server. If you have any questions on today's episode, feel free to ask them on the podcast's Instagram page or Discord server. Links can be found in the episode's description. Thanks again, and I'll see you all on the next episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Mm -hmm.